Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, welcome to the studio, Sharon. Oh my God, it's been so long since I've been in here. I know. Does it look different? No, it kind of looks the same. same. Right? My mask yeah. is laying on <laughs> on the table here. Yeah, but we're far enough away that you know. You, and you're talking into your microphone. I'm talking into mine, so I think we're okay. Oh, you know what? Maybe you need to sanitize the microphone. Let me tell you a story. Pierce, oh Lord. Pierce's friend, who's a DJ, also got COVID. He had DJed a private party, and somebody was doing karaoke, and then he used the mic afterwards, did not sanitize oh, it, wow. and got COVID. Well, I'm not letting anybody use my mic. <laughs> I want to go lick it in just a minute. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I'm glad we're back together. It's been a while, and you know, looking forward to hopefully things getting back to a level mm. of normalcy at some point. Here. I know, right? <laughs> I'm ready for uh, it. Well, I think we've got another another great show put together today. Absolutely. Yeah. So you want to introduce our speaker for the day? Absolutely. I'll have the pleasure of introducing Jose Castillo. Did I say that right? Which way did I use the Castillo there, Jose? <laughs> the Filipino way. Yay! Okay. <laughs> okay. You've taught me well. So, Jose, tell us a little bit about your work life and where you're working and all of those good things real quickly, please. Yes. So I am primarily residing here in Naples, Florida. I practice here in both ACT and independent care settings, GI settings, plastic surgery, and also at the community hospital where I'm at. I also practice as an educator full-time off-site for Texas Wesleyan's graduate program of nurse anesthesia. I do teach a lot of anesthesia courses and also the elective courses that we have for anesthesia, especially professional aspects. Oh, nice. Wow, professional aspects. You know, I I do a little bit of professional aspects, so, you know, I know what that is. I might not know what the rest of it is, but I know what professional aspects (laughs) is. Well, Jose, you know, we've got a topic today that, you know, I don't know that 
is talked about a lot. At least I haven't heard a whole lot about it. So I'm interested today to hear more about this, and that is perioperative updates in the care of our transgender patients. So, Jose, why don't you tell us why this is kind of a timely topic and and why we're talking about it today? Well, it started probably like three years ago or four years ago in 2016, 2017, when I was working in endoscopy at the, our local and uh, community hospital here. And I was thinking to myself, okay, this is going to be a good day, blah, 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 you know, normal day. And then I encountered my first transgender patient. The patient was male to female. There were a lot of whispering in the preoperative area. I was part of the whispering, to tell you honestly. I'm not, I was not born an angel. I was just creating myself to be one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you admit that. (laughs) When I got home that day or later that day, it really dawned on me that that was not the right thing to do because of, as we know, the golden mantra, the golden rule, don't do unto others if you don't want others what to do unto you. Mm -hmm. And of course, we always practice as anesthesia providers that we say to ourselves all the time and even to our students and our fellow practitioners that whoever is on the table could be our mom, could be our dad, somebody else's mom, somebody else's dad, somebody else's kid. So at that point, I started researching and there was not really a whole lot out there. Not even our little community hospital had any policies on it. Not even in pre-op, not on pronouns, not on terminologies, not on proper etiquette, not on anything. And then when I researched more, the only areas that produced these materials with policies and procedures and like were the ones that does the um, sex reassignment surgery. So that's what initiated it. And then it just escalated from there and wrote one article to the next and presented in multiple conferences. So I'm happy to be here to be able to relay more of the information. There's a lot of updates on the topic and I hope to share it with our varied audience. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the definitions related to the care of the transgender patients, Jose. Well, definitely. Yes. That's one of the major things that is somewhat confusing to a lot of people because of the binary type of society that we live in at. But in all actuality, this is data from 2017. Uh, There are approximately 1.4 million transgender individuals in the United States. There's not a whole lot of data collection just because it was taken out of the list for CDC or any grant writing. So I don't know if it's still being asked when we gather information from other sectors of the society. But most often, the definitions include, like, of course, gender and sex, which is very straightforward. Gender is biological sex. Sex is what's assigned at birth, either male or female genitalia. Sexual orientation is the enduring pattern of attraction or behavior. Whereas conformity or gender nonconformity of is a person's gender identity, role, or expression, which differs from the binary definition of sex or gender, which could be one of the definitions, which is now a longer um, acronym, LGBTQIA. <laughs> it's okay. a mouthful. <laughs> L stands for lesbian, G for gay, B for bisexual, T for transgender, Q for queer, I for intersex, and A for a- asexual. And with the transgender community, it usually just says most definitions in some centers starts at the L and then ends with a Q. So it's just LGBTQ. They leave out the IA because it's a given almost. 
I hope I don't offend anyone because I always offend someone when I say something in one of these forums. But with the transgender individuals, these are the gender identity or expression, which is actually the opposite of how it was identified at birth. So most often, the transgender individual is either from a male gender going into a female transition transgender individual or a female going to male. Well, I mean, that brings up a, another good point, Jose. You know, I, I guess, and this would be something that I would struggle with, but I know, you know, our listeners might as well. But, you know, what are the pronoun use and best practices in care of transgender patients? Yes, that is one of the biggest contention and the center of the controversy amongst not only an anesthesia provider world, but also healthcare as a whole or the public as a whole. Because how do we address gender really at the first encounter is the biggest question. And how would we hand off this information from one provider to the other? That is why I mentioned earlier about policies and procedures, because with policies and procedures, it can truly delineate what needs to be done and how it needs to be done on a bigger scale, other than personal beliefs, biases, and prejudices that we have amongst ourselves. So like, for example, I'm, to tell you honestly, I'm a member of the LGBTQIA community, and I am still uncomfortable asking the question to my fellow community members, quote unquote, right? So I always look into these materials and say, okay, how do they want to be addressed? If we are not sure, the literature showed, like Shires and colleagues would say that we can address with they or their, and Miriam Dictionary already approved the they and their as a singular pronoun as opposed to a plural pronoun. Mm. Still boggles my mind. Of yeah. course, I'm not teaching the kids that. It's just going to confuse them more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but if it's male to female, transsexual or transgender individual, then of course, the end result would be a she. So the pronoun to be used could be her, she, or you can even say they or their also. If it's female to male, transsexual or transgender individual, then the end result would be a male, then the person can be addressed as he, him, you know, and also can be used they or there interchangeably. I guess at the end of the day, we just need to ask directly how they want to be addressed. That was the, my next question. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, if you ask that question, at that point, it takes away that variable of, oops, I screwed up and they're going to be upset. I agree. Yes, yeah. the ambiguity, the prejudice with marginalization and the potential for discrimination goes out the door. You just ask the question directly. And I participated in, not I participated, I was an audience to, I'm sorry, to an LBGT care um, given to APRNs here in Florida. It was hosted by the University of Florida and it was very enlightening. They had five to seven people in the panel and that was one of the questions actually, was how do you want to be addressed? And we are, un un as your healthcare provider, whether we're a member of the community or not, we are not comfortable asking the question, how do we approach you? And most of them across the board, all seven of them, majority almost said, just ask. Mm -hmm. It is very offensive if you presume rather than ask. So just ask the question and be direct about it almost to the point that when I say to my students that the most stupid question is the question that was never asked. So <laughs> I think it applies True. to this too. It could be a stupid question if we don't ask it. You know, the, how, how new is this whole pronoun 
thing, Jose, and the reason why I ask is whenever I started at Yale a couple of years ago, and we were in groups and we introduced ourselves, they said, use your pronouns. And no, I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. But clearly, everybody else that was in the room did. Now, granted, they were what they call Geppins, their second career um, advanced practice nurses going to school at Yale. And they knew because they're all in their 20s. But they go around the room and you're supposed to say, hello, my name is Sharon. She, her. Or some people would say binary. Or some people wouldn't even say anything in the room. So it was kind of a different experience for me. But even a lot of the emails that you get now will have pronouns listed in their signature lines. Oh, yeah. I saw that in one AACN Connect post. I thought it was just to identify that they are pro-LGBTQ pronoun use. I really did not understand it, Sharon. I'm going to research on that. The, but to answer the, your question, the dean at the school at Yale, the dean of the nursing school, puts her pronouns on her. Uh, really? Yeah, she sure does. Wow. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that for the first time. The topic that was being discussed was on online testing and the security thereof. So that was the topic that was being discussed. And in the um, signature line of the person who posted were the pronouns. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, oh, well, maybe because it's talking about inclusivity, diversity, and equity, like the biggest topics right now on the forefront in our society. So I'm thinking, oh, that could be it. But I did not really know that that was what was meant for. Hmm. But in regards to your question, I believe that from the research that I have done in the topic internationally, it has been around probably since the 1990s mm-hmm. because the WPATH source that I have for the International Organization for Transgender Care is already, I think, on the 6th. I am not entirely sure. I may need to dig it up in my reference section as to how many versions there are. It's either in the 6th or 7th version. So it has been a while that they have been proposing and promulgating the use and the appropriate utilization of all these pronouns in everyday life. So, yeah, it's mind-boggling how far we are. But then with my research, it only started in 2017. So that's when I started looking at all this stuff. Well, let me ask you about the different stages of transition that they go through, Jose. Yes. So there are the transition changes are it can vary from person to person. It could be as simple as a cross-dressing or transvestism as a definition or it could be as permanent or irreversible as with sex reassignment surgery. So with my research, I saw three levels. The first level would be on reversible or fully reversible changes wherein dressing in the manner and in the way of the opposite sex or the way that you want to be identified as a transgender individual is uh, transition phase one. Phase two would be partially reversible because of the use of hormone replacement therapy. So this could be either through feminizing or masculinizing hormone therapy. And the third and last phase was the one that I was mentioning earlier, which is, of course, irreversible, especially if it's below the waist type of procedure, which is a surgical procedure on going forward with the external genitalia of the sex that you identify, that the person identifies with 
as a transgender individual. Now, how many places in the country actually do the sexual reassignment of the genitalia? I know Duke used to do it years ago, and they stopped doing it. But Mm -hmm. I don't think there's very many places in this country, are there? Yeah, I don't think there are. Because when I even pulled up account for all the CRNAs to at least share with me their policies and procedures, there's not a whole lot who came forward. The CRNAs in California, Massachusetts, Arizona, and of course here in my home state came forward and gave me a lot of resources. But at the same time, it's not really a whole lot. It's still being hushed-hushed. It's uh, being swept under the rug, although it's part of the Affordable Care Act, as long as you have the gender dysphoria type of diagnosis to be able to go into sex reassignment or gender reassignment surgery, you are able to be covered under your health insurance as long as, of course, you pre-qualify or ask first in order to understand what your coverage has. But in answer to your question, it is very small. That's a good point, too. I'm going to look into that. Well, my understanding is they go out of the country, particularly to South America, where it can be done cheaper. And so they save their money and go outside of the country. And, you know, you alluded to the fact that you work in plastics. And I have put a few to sleep who were in the process of transitioning and they were getting breast implants. The only ones I've done are the males transitioning to female. And they start with that. And just as a side note, doing those, I found that if they have not been on their estrogen for a while, so their muscles have softened up because we do all of our implants under the muscle. Normally, I do them under a LMA. But man, if they are in the early part of their transition and haven't been on hormones very long, I have to tube them and paralyze them because their pecs are so strong like Mm a a man it's very difficult to get the implant under the muscle and that's my very limited exposure to this issue that's pretty good um i'm gonna add that into one of our perioperative scenarios that's really good if i can use that and get your consent to use that uh, absolutely but that was I, i learned the hard way because, you know, they, they use those little paddle things to open up, up underneath the muscle. And we had a heck of a time. Uh, but yeah, if they've been on the estrogen for a while, you know, they yeah. they get soft like a woman. Yeah. Yes. Huh. And funny that you, that you mentioned that because I even said, like, there's not a whole lot of information out there when I presented this during the ANA Annual Congress in 2018. And one of the... CRNAs in California said, oh, no, we don't, we make them stop their testosterone. Or if it's a female to male therapy, we make them stop their testosterone two weeks prior or else they come out swinging. Their delirium Mm -hmm. level is really Uh, high. So that is one of the answers that I was going to give you um, later forward when we talk about an anesthetic care plan specific for a transgender. Well, I I guess I jumped ahead, but (laughs) you know, funny you would bring that up. And I had one that I did that was on, you know, a ton of estrogen and she woke up crying and her partner was very upset. Her, Mm. her partner was a he and Mm -hmm. The only thing I knew to say was she's on 
a lot of estrogen and it's like she's having three periods at one time she's gonna cry and she just bawled Mm. as soon as i woke her up wow wow yes well jose speaking of anesthesia care plans you know what are the anesthesia considerations you know involved in working with transgender patients well one very prominent one that i saw in social media that is a controversial point of discussion is pregnancy testing. Um, Should we test or should we not test? I saw it in a few social media outlets with CRNAs and SRNAs or combined. And the policy is, again, I'm harping on the policy because it really covers us a lot, uh, are behind uh, not only on legal aspect, but also on the care aspect, is that if there is a policy that we will need to know, we need to follow it. Usually, if a female is in her childbearing years, that's the policy, right? The pregnancy test should be done. However, it's really uncomfortable when you see and you don't know how to approach it. And if it's a female to male patient, we know that they are already transitioning probably halfway or fully towards being male because I'm not, my lecture actually and my research is not focused on sex reassignment surgery. My lecture and Um, research is focused on how do we care for our patients when they're going for colonoscopy, EGD, you know, our bread and butter procedures, appendicitis, how are we going to care for them? When this patient comes in, you won't even know that he is transitioning from a female and you can only see male and then you're going to ask her to do a pregnancy test. Mm. So what's your policy? From what I have seen in the literature, also same with cancer care, is that if the anatomy is still present, then we should do the test. So for example, if the anatomy is still present for the cervix, the uterus, the ovaries, we still need to do the cancer screening. If the person has not transitioned fully to male and the breasts are still there, we still need to do the mammography. So in similar aspect, if we think of it like that in an anatomical perspective and a structural perspective, I think we can formulate better policies to address what needs to be done clinically. I know that I'm trying to separate the emotion, but at the same time, we need to be objective with our care. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, Sharon, you, again, as a clinical practitioner here, what are your thoughts? Because you've not dealt with it. I'm just, uh, well, I see you pontificating over well, there. Well, so. it's kind of funny. Somebody asked this very question of me yesterday, huh. which is really that's, ironic. That's timing. Huh. Well, <laughs> you know, I think it goes back to exactly what Jose just said. We allow people, if you don't have a uterus, you don't have to have a pregnancy test. And right. so I think it's okay to ask that question do you have a uterus? I mean, I'd ask a female that, yeah. any female that, right, and give them that option to decline the test. Mm-hmm. So, I agree. And if they decline, they decline. We do the necessary procedure that we need to do. Exactly. We sign off. Yeah. I mean, they have that right to decline. I agree. Yeah. Yes. So even if they don't want to answer the question and they decline, yeah. yes. I mean, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, I think what you've done in that case is you've CYA. Yes. And that kind of goes to what you were alluding to a little bit ago, Jose, at least I read between the lines, is if we have a procedure and a policy in place and we adhere to that, we're covering ourselves from who knows what coming down the pike from this potential liability 
scenario. And I think that's what, you know, obviously we're all worried about the patient, but on the backside, you've also got to be worried about liability and making sure that you're doing all the steps necessary that you do for any patient. Right. And again, being able to remove that emotional aspect of that, the the emotion around the patient that the patient might have around this issue, and to think logically and clinically about it, I think is, is probably the smart way to do it. I agree. Yes. And the bottom line is always the patient care, of course. Right, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the common medications that they take with their hormone replacement therapy. I know that they take high-dose estrogen and I'm sure testosterone for if they're transitioning female to male. Yes, so aside from this um, hormone replacement therapy type of medications, we still have to deal with questions in the preoperative setting on like what are their coexisting diseases because as we know we once we map out their coexisting diseases such as hypertension we know that they will be on hypertensive meds diabetes diabetic meds but another thing that we need to also consider is that some of these patients that we may encounter could have had substance abuse depression prostitution delinquency or homelessness we need to screen them probably for stds because of I interviewed another friend of mine who is going through a transition in San Francisco, and she has a lot of friends who are prostitutes in San Francisco because that's the only way that they can survive without getting marginalized or discriminated in public because she said like two of her friends ran away from their homes even before finishing high school. So it's kind of sad, but we are these are the things that are facts in what we see in our daily not that daily, but what we may see in our patients. So we may need to assess this. Other than that, there are certain medications that could decrease or interact with the hormone replacement therapy, but most centers would, not most centers, I would say, some centers would stop testosterone or estrogen therapy two weeks prior because of the effects that it can ensue. Just like what you said, there are two emotional if they're still in estrogen, if they're in testosterone, they might punch you because mm-hmm. of a delirium process. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other question that has come up in the 2018 conference presentation that I did was on Sugamidex. And the question was, um, should we be concerned about Sugamidex if we give Sugamidex and they are in their childbearing years? And at that time, I really did not know how to answer that question. But now that we have the answer of if the person or the patient has the anatomy, then we really need to preoperatively address it with the patient. Because we don't know if they are only having sexual relations with one members with members of the opposite sex or of the same sex. So we we don't know. We just need to caution them. So something to tuck in our anesthesia toolbox that if we are going to do Sugamidex and they are transitioning from female to male and they still have the anatomy, then we need to truly tell them that you may need to abstain from sexual activities for at least a week or seven days until this drug wears off from your body because you might there's a chance that you might get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. I mean, this brings up a whole host of other things. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, we're not going to get to everything in this podcast, but I, I think it's interesting to kind of listen to all the ways that you can go down the line with this and the things you need to be cognizant about and think about 
clinically, personally, you know, with the patient. I mean, it brings up a whole host of, of issues. And I'm glad, Jose, there are people out there like you who, uh, you know, who have kind of delved into this arena to bring it to the forefront. I mean, if there are 1.4 million, I think you said, transgender folks out there, you know, I don't think that that's probably going to go lower at this point. So, And you may not even know per se. I did have a case in an endoscopy unit. We were doing an upper and nobody said anything to me, but you know, they're kind of clues. Yeah. yeah. And after I put the patient to sleep, sedated them, it was Henrietta was the name. And I looked at the doctor and I said, is this a Henry? And he said, yes, it is. Cause you can always tell by their hands a man's yeah. hands oh, are absolutely. different yeah. different than a woman's hands well i mean but I, nobody told me but, and, and and i didn't care i mean i don't mean that yeah i, I still give the same anesthetic okay, for an endoscopy yeah i was gonna ask was there any know. difference in that so so it didn't make any difference but and they did not have to deal with the pregnancy issue i guess so but that's the only time that's ever occurred to me hmm that's interesting. Well, Jose, this is obviously a topic that, you know, we probably need to get together and readdress at another point as well. But I think for today, that's good. And, and maybe is there anything you'd like to conclude on as we kind of wrap this one up? Yeah, just one more thing. I think it's on pleading for the emotional aspect mm. from every individual. And of course, it's logical also and senseful for all of us. And not only as you uh, anesthesia providers, but as humane members of our society, we just need to be aware of our biases and prejudices as we care for each patient. And not only with transgender patients, because I still have, well, I don't really have, I don't really have a sheltered type of <laughs> type of upbringing, but I still get shocked, you know? Right. So right. I think that from that perspective, we just need to keep an open mind. We just need to make sure that we care for others like we want to be cared for. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And that just leads into, you know, you're there to take care of a patient. You leave your biases, just like if you were taking care of your family, you wouldn't want anybody else to have that bias and against them. And that's why, you know, you wouldn't anesthetize your children or your wife because there's an emotional bias there. But it's kind of the same thing. And I think that's what you're saying with this is leave those biases at the door and take care of that patient to the best of your abilities. Yes. And for more information, I am actually presenting this ANA Annual Congress on demand. <laughs> so there will be slides there and there will be some a lot more case studies that will be presented. So if you are interested in more of this topic, go to that aspect and uh, educate ourselves. Well, I'm assuming too, just because, you know, we do have a lot of listeners out there and if they, they find themselves interested in this or want to know more, are you open to people contacting you, Jose? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I right. have had a few people contact me asking for a sample policy. I've asked, that I've had people contact question. me, giving me case studies, actually. <laughs> Educating you a, a little bit, huh? So I has the practice committee already developed any internal policies within the AANA? Jose, do you know? Not that I have known of okay. before. Well, it might be worth um, a question. <laughs> right? Lynn Reed was um, starting the conversation with me in 2018. Yes. Probably a good question to ask. Yeah, I will look into that. Yeah. yeah. 
Good point, Sharon. Well, I, I think uh, I think Sharon will wrap it up there. I think so. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show, want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's positive. There's enough negativity out there. Until next time. It's real. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.